0: Chapter 10 of The Last of the Mohicans, a Narrative of 1757, by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 10 Quote, I fear we shall outsleep the coming morn as much as we this night have overwatched." Unquote. From Midsummer Night's Dream The instant the shock of this sudden misfortune had abated, Duncan began to make his observations on the appearance and proceedings of their captors. Contrary to the usages of the natives in the wantonness of their success, they had respected not only the persons of the trembling sisters, but his own. The rich ornaments of his military attire had indeed been repeatedly handled by different individuals of the tribes, with eyes expressing a savage longing to possess the baubles. But, before the customary violence could be resorted to, a mandate in the authoritative voice of the large warrior, already mentioned, stayed the uplifted hand, and convinced Hayward that they were to be reserved for some object of particular moment. While, however, these manifestations of weakness were exhibited by the young in vain of the party, the more experienced warriors continued their search throughout both caverns, with an activity that denoted they were far from being satisfied with those fruits of their conquest which had already been brought to light. Unable to discover any new victim, these diligent workers of vengeance soon approached their male prisoners pronouncing the name
1: La Long Carabine
0: with a fierceness that could not be easily mistaken. Duncan affected not to comprehend the meaning of the repeated and violent interrogatories, while his companion was spared the effort of a similar deception by his ignorance of French. Wearied at length by their importunities, and apprehensive of irritating his captors by too stubborn a silence, the former looked about him in quest of Mauqua, who might interpret his answers to questions which were at each moment becoming more earnest and threatening. The conduct of this savage had formed a solitary exception to that of his fellows, while the others were busily occupied in seeking to gratify their childish passion for finery by plundering even the miserable effects of the scout, or had been searching with such bloodthirsty vengeance in their looks for their absent owner, Lady Renard had stood at a little distance from the prisoners, with a demeanour so quiet and satisfied as to betray that he had already effected the grand purpose of his treachery. When the eyes of Hayward first met those of his recent guide, he turned them away in horror at the sinister, though calm, look he encountered. Conquering his disgust, however, he was able, with an averted face, to address his successful enemy. "'Le Renaud Subtil is too much of a warrior,' said the reluctant Hayward. "'To refuse telling an unarmed man what his conquerors say.' "'They ask for the hunter. Who knows the path through the woods?' returned Magua, in his broken English, laying his hand at the same time, with a ferocious smile, on the bundle of leaves, with which a wound on his shoulder was bandaged. La long carabine! His rifle is good, and his eye never shut. But like the short-gun kind of the white chief, it is nothing against the life of Les Subtil. Le is too brave to remember the hurts received in war, or the hands that gave them. Was it war, when the tired Indian rested at the sugar-tree, to taste his corn? Who filled the bushes with creeping enemies? Who drew the knife, whose tongue was of peace, while his heart was colored with blood? Did Marquas say that the hatchet was out of the ground, and that his hand had dug it up? As Duncan dared not retort upon his accuser, by reminding him of his own premeditated treachery, and disdained to deprecate his resentment by any words of apology, he remained silent. Magua seemed also content to rest the controversy as well, as all further communication there. For he resumed the leaning attitude against the rock from which, in momentary energy he had arisen, But the cry of, Le long carabin, was renewed the instant the impatient savages perceived that the short dialogue was ended. You hear, said Maqua with stubborn indifference, the red Hurons call for the life of the long rifle, or they will have the blood of him that kept him hid. He is gone, escaped, he is far beyond their reach. Renard smiled with cold contempt as he answered. When the white man dies, he thinks he is at peace, but the red men know how to torture even the ghost of their enemies. Where is his body? Let the Huron see his scalp. He is not dead, but escaped. Marquis shook his head incredulously. Is he a bird to spread his wings, or is he a fish to swim without air? The White Chief read in his books, and he believes the Hurons are fools. Though no fish, the Long Rifle can swim. He floated down the stream when the powder was all burned, and when the eyes of the Hurons were behind a cloud. And why did the White Chief stay? demanded the incredulous Indian. "'Is he a stone that goes to the bottom, or does the scalp burn his head?' "'That I am not stone, your dead comrade who fell into the falls might answer. Where there's still life in him?' said the provoked young man, using in his anger that boastful language which was most likely to excite the admiration of an Indian. "'The white man thinks none but cowards desert their women.' Mokwa muttered a few words, inaudibly, between his teeth, before he continued aloud. "'Can the Delawares swim, too, as well as crawl in the bushes? Where is le Gros serpent?' Duncan, who perceived by the use of these Canadian appellations that his late companions were much better known to his enemies than to himself, answered reluctantly, "'He also is gone down.' with the water. Le Cerfegil is not here. "'I know not whom you call the Nimble Deer,' said Duncan gladly, profiting by any excuse to create delay. Uncas returned Magua, pronouncing the Delaware name, with even greater difficulty than he spoke his English words. "'Bounding Elk!' is what the white man says when he calls to the young Mohican. "'Here is some confusion in names between us, Le Renard, said Duncan, hoping to provoke a discussion. "'Dame is the French for deer, and serf for stag. Elan is the true term, when one would speak of an elk.' "'Yes,' muttered the Indian in his native tongue. "'The pale-faces are prattling women.' They have two words for each thing, while a redskin will make the sound of his voice speak to him. Then, changing his language, he continued, adhering to the imperfect nomenclature of his provincial instructors. The deer is swift but weak, the elk is swift but strong, and the son of Le Serpent is Le Serf agile. "'Has he leaped the river to the woods?' "'If you mean the younger Delaware, he too has gone down with the water.' As there was nothing improbable to an Indian in the manner of the escape, Magua admitted the truth of what he had heard, with a readiness that afforded additional evidence how little he would prize such worthless captives. With his companions, however, The feeling was manifestly different. The Hurons had awaited the result of this short dialogue, with characteristic patience, and with a silence that increased until there was a general stillness in the band. When Hayward ceased to speak, they turned their eyes as one man on Magua, demanding in this expressive manner an explanation of what had been said. Their interpreter pointed to the river, and made them acquainted with the result, as much by the action as by the few words he uttered. When the fact was generally understood, the savages raised a frightful yell, which declared the extent of their disappointment. Some ran furiously to the water's edge, beating the air with frantic gestures, while others spat upon the element, to resent the supposed treason it had committed against their acknowledged rights as conquerors. A few—and they not the least powerful and terrific of the band threw lowering looks, in which the fiercest passion was only tempered by habitual self-command at those captives who still remained in their power, while one or two even gave vent to their malignant feelings by the most menacing gestures, against which Neither the sex nor the beauty of the sisters was any protection. The young soldier made a desperate, but fruitless, effort to spring to the side of Alice, when he saw the dark hand of a savage twisted in the rich tresses, which were flowing in volumes over her shoulders, while a knife was passed around the head from which they fell, as if to denote the horrid manner in which it was about to be robbed of its beautiful ornament. But his hands were bound, and at the first movement he made he felt the grasp of the powerful Indian who directed the band pressing his shoulder like a vice. Immediately conscious how unavailing any struggle against such overwhelming force must prove, he submitted to his fate, encouraging his gentle companions by a few low and tender assurances that the natives seldom failed to threaten more than they performed. But while Duncan resorted to these words of consolation to quiet the apprehensions of the sisters, he was not so weak as to deceive himself. He well knew that the authority of an Indian chief was so little conventional, that it was oftener maintained by physical superiority than by any moral supremacy he might possess. The danger was, therefore, magnified exactly in proportion to the number of savage spirits by which they were surrounded. The most positive mandate from him who seemed the acknowledged leader was liable to be violated at each moment by any rash hand that might choose to sacrifice a victim to the manes of some dead friend or relative. While, therefore, he sustained an outward appearance of calmness and fortitude, His heart leaped into his throat, whenever any of their fierce captors drew near than common to the helpless sisters, or fastened one of their solemn, wondering looks on those fragile forms, which were so little able to resist the slightest assault. His apprehensions were, however, greatly relieved, when he saw that the leader had summoned his warriors to himself in council. Their deliberations were short, and it would seem by the silence of most of the party, the decision unanimous. By the frequency with which the few speakers pointed in the direction of the encampment of Webb, it was apparent they dreaded the approach of danger from that quarter. This consideration probably hastened their determination, and quickened the subsequent movements. During his short conference, Hayward, finding a respite from his gravest fears, had leisure to admire the cautious manner in which the Hurons had made their approaches, even after hostilities had ceased. It has already been stated that the upper half of the island was a naked rock, and destitute of any other defenses than a few scattered logs of driftwood. They had selected this point to make their descent, having borne the canoe through the wood around the cataract for that purpose. Placing their arms in the little vessel, a dozen men, clinging to its sides, had trusted themselves to the direction of the canoe, which was controlled by two of the most skillful warriors, in attitudes that enabled them to command a view of the dangerous passage. Favored by this arrangement, they touched the head of the island at that point which had proved so fatal to their first adventures but with the advantages of superior numbers and the possession of firearms. That such had been the manner of their descent was rendered quite apparent to Duncan, for they now bore the light bark from the upper end of the rock, and placed it in the water near the mouth of the outer cavern. As soon as this change was made, the leader made signs to the prisoners to descend and enter. As resistance was impossible, and remonstrance useless, Hayward set the example of submission, by leading the way into the canoe, where he was soon seated with the sisters and the still-wondering David. Notwithstanding, the Hurons were necessarily ignorant of the little channels among the eddies and rapids of the streams. They knew the common signs of such a navigation too well to commit any material blunder. When the pilot, chosen for the task of guiding the canoe, had taken his station, the whole band plunged again into the river. The vessel glided down the current, and in a few moments the captives found themselves on the south bank of the stream, nearly opposite to the point where they had struck it the preceding evening. Here was held another short but earnest consultation, during which the horses, to whose panic their owners ascribed their heaviest misfortune, were led from the covert of the woods, and brought to the sheltered spot. The band now divided. The great chief, so often mentioned, mounting the charger of Hayward, led the way directly across the river, followed by most of his people, and disappeared in the woods, leaving the prisoners in charge of six savages, at whose head was Le Renard Subtil. Duncan witnessed all their movements with renewed uneasiness. He had been fond of believing, from the uncommon forbearance of the savages, that he was reserved as a prisoner to be delivered to Montcalm. As the thoughts of those who were in misery seldom slumber, and the invention is never more likely than when it is stimulated by hope, however feeble and remote, he had even imagined that the parental feelings of Monroe were to be made instrumental in seducing him from his duty to the king. For, though the French commander bore a high character for courage and enterprise, he was also thought to be an expert in those political practices, which do not always respect the nicer obligations of morality, and which so generally disgraced the European diplomacy of that period all those busy and ingenious speculations, were now annihilated by the conduct of his captors. That portion of the band who had followed the huge warrior took the route toward the foot of the Horican, and no other expectation was left for himself and companions than that they were to be retained as hopeless captives by their savage conquerors. Anxious to know the worst, and willing, in such an emergency, to try the potency of gold, he overcame his reluctance to speak to Magua. Addressing himself to his former guide, who had now assumed the authority and manner of one who was to direct the future movements of the party, he said in tones as friendly and confiding as he could assume, I would speak to Maqua what is fit only for so great a chief to hear. The Indian turned his eyes on the young soldier scornfully as he answered. "'Speak. Trees have no ears. But the red Hurons are not deaf. And counsel that is fit for the great men of a nation would make the young warriors drunk. If Magua will not listen, the officer of the king knows how to be silent.' The savage spoke carelessly to his comrades. Who were busied, after their awkward manner, in preparing the horses for the reception of the sisters, and moved a little to one side, whither, by a cautious gesture, he induced Hayward to follow. Now speak," he said, "if the words are such as Maquas should hear. Le Renald Subtil has proved himself worthy of the honorable name given to him by his Canada fathers." Commenced Hayward. I see his wisdom, and all that he has done for us, and shall remember it when the hour to reward him arrives. Yes, Renard has proved that he is not only a great chief in council, but one who knows how to deceive his enemies. What has Renard done? Coldly demanded the Indian. What? "'Has he not seen that the woods were filled with outlying parties of the enemies, "'and that the serpent could not steal through them without being seen? "'Then did he not lose his path to blind the eyes of the Hurons? "'Did he not pretend to go back to his tribe who had treated him ill "'and driven him from their wigwams like a dog? "'And when he saw what he wished to do, did we not aid him?' by making a false face, that the Hurons might think the white man believed that his friend was his enemy? Is not all this true? And when Les Subtil had shut the eyes and stopped the ears of his nation by his wisdom, did they not forget that they had once done him wrong, and forced him to flee to the Mohawks? And did they not leave him on the south of the river with their prisoners, while they have gone foolishly to the north? Does not Renard mean to turn like a fox on his footsteps, and carry to the rich and grey-headed Scotchman his daughters? Yes, Maqua, I see it all, and I have already been thinking how so much wisdom and honesty should be repaid. First, the chief of William Henry will give as great chief should for such a service. The medal of Magua will no longer be of tin. Footnote. It has long been a practice of the whites to conciliate the important men of the Indians by presenting medals which were worn in the place of their own rude ornaments. Those given by the English generally bear the impression of the reigning king, and those given by the Americans, that of the President. And footnote, but of beaten gold. His horn will run over with powder. Dollars will be as plenty in his pouch, as pebbles on the shore of Horican. And the deer will lick his hand, for they will know it to be vain to fly from the rifle he will carry. As for myself, I know not how to exceed the gratitude of the Scotchman, but I— Yes? I will. What will the young chief who comes from toward the sun give? demanded the Huron. Observing that Hayward hesitated in his desire to end the enumeration of benefits with that which might form the climax of an Indian's wishes. He will make the fire-water from the islands in the salt lake, flow before the wigwam of Maqua, until the heart of the Indian shall be lighter than the feathers of the hummingbird. And his breath sweeter than wild honeysuckle. Le Renard had listened gravely as Hayward slowly proceeded in this subtle speech. When the young man mentioned the artifice, he supposed the Indian to have practiced on his own nation. The countenance of the listener was veiled in an expression of cautious gravity. At the allusion to the injury which Duncan affected to believe had driven the Huron from his native tribe, a gleam of such ungovernable— ferocity flashed from the other's eyes, as induced the adventurous speaker to believe he had struck the proper chord. And by the time he reached the part, where he so artfully blended the thirst of vengeance with the desire of gain, he had at least obtained a command of the deepest attention of the savage. The question put by Le Renard had been calm, and with all the dignity of an Indian. But it was quite apparent by the thoughtful expression of the listener's countenance, that the answer was most cunningly devised. The Huron mused a few moments, and then laying his hand on the rude bandages of his wounded shoulder, he said, with some energy, "'Do friends make such marks? Would La Longue carabine cut one so slight on an enemy?' Do the Delawares crawl upon those they love like snakes, twisting themselves to strike? Would Le Gros serpent have been heard by the ears of one he wished to be deaf? Does the white chief burn his powder in the faces of his brothers? Does he ever miss his aim? When seriously bent to kill, returned Duncan, smiling with well-acted sincerity. Another long and deliberate pause succeeded these sententious questions, and ready replies. Duncan saw that the Indian hesitated. In order to complete his victory, he was in the act of recommencing the enumeration of the rewards, when Magua made an expressive gesture and said, "'Enough! Le Renard is a wise chief, and what he does will be seen. Go and keep the mouth shut. "'When Magua speaks—' It will be the time to answer." Hayward, perceiving that the eyes of his companion were warily fastened on the rest of the band, fell back immediately, in order to avoid the appearance of any suspicious confederacy with their leader. Maqua approached the horses, and affected to be well pleased with the diligence and ingenuity of his comrades. He then signed to Hayward to assist the sisters into the saddles. For he seldom deigned to use the English tongue, unless urged by some motive of more than usual moment. There was no longer any plausible pretext for delay, and Duncan was obliged, however reluctantly, to comply. As he performed this office, he whispered his reviving hopes in the ears of the trembling females, who, through dread of encountering the savage countenances of their captors, seldom raised their eyes from the ground. The mayor of David had been taken with the followers of the large chief. In consequence, its owner, as well as Duncan, was compelled to journey on foot. The latter did not, however, so much regret this circumstance as it might enable him to retard the speed of the party, for he still turned his longing looks in the direction of Fort Edward in the vain expectation of catching some sound from that quarter of the forest, which might denote the approach of Suker. When all were prepared, Mokwa made the signal to proceed, advancing in front to lead the party in person. Next followed David, who was gradually coming to a true sense of his condition, as the effects of the wound became less and less apparent. The sisters rode in his rear with Hayward at their side, while the Indians flanked the party, and brought up the close of the march, with a caution that seemed never to tire. In this manner they proceeded in uninterrupted silence, except when Hayward expressed some solitary word of comfort to the females, or David gave vent to the moanings of his spirit in piteous exclamations, which he intended should express the humility of resignation their direction lay toward the south, and in a course nearly opposite to the road to William Henry. Notwithstanding this apparent adherence in Maqua to the original determination of his conquerors, Hayward could not believe his tempting bait was so soon forgotten, and he knew the windings of an Indian's path too well to suppose that its apparent course led directly to its object. When artifice— was at all necessary. Mile after mile was, however, passed through the boundless woods, in this painful manner, without any prospect of a termination of their journey. Hayward watched the sun, as he darted his meridian rays through the branches of the trees, and pined for the moment when the policy of Maqua should change their route to one more favourable to his hopes. Sometimes he fancied the weary savage, despairing of passing the army of Montcalm in safety, was holding his way toward a well-known border settlement, where a distinguished officer of the Crown, and a favored friend of the Six Nations, held his large possessions as well as his usual residence. To be delivered into the hands of Sir William Johnson was far preferable to being led into the wilds of Canada. But in order to effect even the former, it would be necessary to traverse the forest, for many weary leagues, each step of which was carrying him further from the scene of the war, and consequently from the post not only of honor, but of duty. Cora alone remembered the parting injunctions of the scout, and whenever an opportunity offered, she stretched forth her arm to bend aside the twigs that met her hands but the vigilance of the Indians rendered this act of precaution both difficult and dangerous. She was often defeated in her purpose by encountering their watchful eyes, when it became necessary to feign an alarm she did not feel, and occupy the limb by some gesture of feminine apprehension. Once, and once only, was she completely successful, when she broke down the bow of a large sumac, and by a sudden thought, let her glove fall at the same instant. This sign, intended for those that might follow, was observed by one of her conductors, who restored the glove, broke the remaining branches of the bush in such a manner that it appeared to proceed from the struggling of some beast in its branches, and then laid his hand on his tomahawk, with a look so significant that it put an effectual end to those stolen memorials of their passage as there were horses to leave the prints of their footsteps, in both bands of the Indians. This interruption cut off any probable hopes of assistance being conveyed through the means of their trail. Hayward would have ventured a remonstrance had there been anything encouraging in the gloomy reserve of Magua. But the savage, during all this time, seldom turned to look at his fellows, and never spoke with the sun for his only guide, or aided by such blind marks as are only known to the sagacity of a native, he held his way along the barrens of pine, through occasional little fertile vales, across brooks and rivulets, and over undulating hills, with the accuracy of instinct, and nearly with the directness of a bird. He never seemed to hesitate. Whether the path was hardly distinguishable, Whether it disappeared, or whether it lay beaten and plain before him, made no sensible difference in his speed or certainty. It seemed as if fatigue could not affect him. Whenever the eyes of the wearied travellers rose from the decayed leaves over which they trod, his dark form was to be seen glancing among the stems of the trees in front, his head immovably fastened in a forward position, with the light plume on his crest fluttering in a current of air made solely by the swiftness of his own motion but all his diligence and speed were not without an object after crossing a low vale through which a gushing brook meandered he suddenly ascended a hill so steep and difficult of ascent that the sisters were compelled to alight in order to follow when the summit was gained they found themselves on a level spot but thinly covered with trees, under one of which Mokwa had thrown his dark form, as if willing and ready to seek that rest, which was so much needed by the whole party. End of Chapter 10 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin, of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in the summer of 2007